Benjamins, baby. Uh huh, yeah. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. In today's episode, we'll be talking to one of France's leading fintech regulators to discuss the country's plans uh, towards introducing new European crypto rules, not only in Paris, but in other European capitals. But before we do, we've been receiving some really interesting comments from listeners, and we want to start incorporating your comments into the program. Let's call it feedback from the crowd. Episode 11 on the fight against money laundering sparked a lot of interest, and Patrick McCarty, a former CFTC general counsel and congressional staffer, had some really interesting comments. So I invited him onto the show to share them. So Pat, thanks for being here. Chris, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. So you had made the observation that there's another major vulnerability in the cryptocurrency ecosystem that's relevant to money laundering. And uh, as a result, you had mentioned that perhaps our conversation also needs to address those when we think about cryptocurrencies and exchange vulnerabilities. Uh, Maybe you could spell out exactly what you meant. It's actually with respect to investor protection because uh, what we're talking about here is off-chain transactions. Um, My point would be is that there's a myth in the digital asset world that every transaction is recorded on the public blockchain. That's just not true. And in fact, when you establish an account on many of the crypto exchanges, what you do is you transfer your crypto to them and then they hold it and you trade internally on their books until you take it out, which could be a day, could be a week, could be years before it comes back out. And so what you've got is a bunch of off-chain transactions, trains which, transactions which are not reflected on the public blockchain, which could basically be totally at odds with what people think they own, and they're not checked. It's a, really a big problem. So really what you're saying uh, is that uh, during the life cycle of someone sort of keeping uh, their private keys over at some exchanges, uh, those exchanges may not be uh, directly transacting. So if you buy or you sell Bitcoin, it's not necessarily being reflected in the Bitcoin uh, blockchain or uh, any other crypto uh, currency. But instead, it's basically a bookkeeping system where if you have multiple accounts, the exchange is basically crediting and debiting the different accounts, uh, which which is uh, interesting. And it seems like you would have some efficiency, I, I suppose, because they get to clear faster than one would normally expect on a on a cryptocurrency blockchain, but what you're saying is it's all happening off-chain and we don't really know what's happening uh, in those off-chain transactions. Exactly. And I think when you look at what um, Satoshi Nakamoto thought about and his solution to the problem with um, the double spend problem, when he said, here's how we're going to basically make it so that you don't have to have a trusted third party in between the transactions, what we do is have everyone post their transactions to the public blockchain. That way, people can check to see and make sure that, in fact, no double spending is going on. What we have had come up in the last, I guess, five to six years is the 
the exchanges have basically done, internalized a lot of the transactional volume. And so what's on the public blockchain, it shows that Coinbase or Bittrex or Binance owns a lot of either Bitcoin or Ether or other things, but they, they actually don't own it. They're holding it on behalf of customers, and it's being used for internal transaction volumes. And so there's a very sort of disconnect between what Satoshi thought about and how he wanted people to be able to see who owned what and what we have today. So all this, the idea being that there's transparency and the like, you're not necessarily getting it to the extent to which there's one centralized entity, ironically, controlling the bookkeeping for those transactions. Correct. And I think the one of the problems that you've got is that you don't have the exchanges themselves being very transparent about what their internal books look like, who owns what, how those things are basically accounted for. And that that's creating a huge sort of gap so, Pat, I, I know that you had also mentioned uh, this question about trading volumes and that apparently some of the trading volumes were not reported uh, accurately. So, so what exactly is that all about and what's the, the regulatory upshot? Chris, this is a really big issue. In the last nine months, three separate reports have come out which say that, in fact, the amount of trading volume that has been reported to coin market cap by the various crypto exchanges has been inflated by nine to 10 times the amount of actual trading. There is worry about wash trading that's going on, which is basically creating the illusion of liquidity on these markets. Further, people are saying that some of these exchanges are trying to get new customers by saying, look at all the volume we have. So people are saying we have 20 million or $100 million worth of volume when in fact they only have maybe $1 million in volume. So it's a huge problem because the exchanges are not being truthful. And it's it's really misleading people as to what's going on. And, the, and part of the off-chain transactions are enabling this this to, to occur? Or is this different from the, 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 the problem of off-chain transactions? Well, it's it's different from the, the off-chain transactions issue, but it goes more to the point that, in fact, the crypto exchanges around the world are really not regulated in the right way. They're not subject to the same requirements that the SEC or the CFTC apply to regular exchanges, which is sort of part and parcel of FinCEN and, and money services businesses focusing on money laundering and not focusing on being an exchange and being regulated as an exchange. Thanks so much for being on the show. This is really an interesting perspective, and we appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for having me. Now, shifting our sights overseas, we have the honor of speaking with Domiti Dessertin, the head of fintech innovation and competition for the Autorité des Marchés Financiers, or the AMF. Now, you may recall some of our earlier conversations on this podcast with both Christopher Giancarlo, the former head of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and Stephen Mayor, the EU's top securities regulator, about the AMF being the first uh, responder and in some instances leading the way uh, with regards to the challenges posed by uh, international crypto markets. Now, in these conversations, both Mayor and Giancarlo pointed to new rules the AMF was implementing concerning cryptocurrencies uh, called the pact, like a pact, uh, seeking to define and bring clarity to the digital asset space 
and all of the corresponding markets. Now, I found this very interesting that such global heavyweights would be bringing attention to this, and I wanted to learn more. And Domiti has been very kind to speak with us. And I think it's even more interesting, of course, now that U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has suggested uh, just last week that new rules for crypto may be coming soon here to the United States as well. So in our conversation, we'll be discussing the pact law, the processes involved in operating as an EU member state, and of course, Facebook's Libra project. So let's get to our interview with our friend across the Atlantic. Uh, what is France's, or what is your view uh, as to how fintech is going to play itself out in terms of its development in France uh, in light of all these uh, interesting cross-border issues, uh, both in the European Union and, and with the, uh, the United Kingdom? No, definitely. Um, innovation is cross-border in nature. So, of course, we need also to, to look at it from a, from a European perspective, that's for sure. Um, now, with Brexit, of course, we're losing one of the most uh, innovative financial centers in Europe, um, among many of the other things that we are losing. Um, now, there are many other great places for innovation in Europe. Paris is one of them, but there's also Berlin, Amsterdam, or Dublin. And I think Brexit is actually a good opportunity also for Europe to look ahead and try to reflect on tomorrow's issues. Um, it's true that um, it will be challenging because the, the, the current regulatory framework that is largely set for financial services at the European level uh, is largely sectoral. Uh, it's based on well-defined categories of actors and products, and um, this approach cannot really respond to the emerging models, and it often constitutes a real uh, barrier to the entry of new players. So you know, you know that particular law that you re referenced. This, this, I, I assume you're talking about the the, the pact law uh, that was passed. Exactly. It has actually attracted an enormous amount of attention here, attention here in the United States, both in sort of the U.S. financial press. Um, we've done podcasts where it's come up from time to time, even by very senior uh, heads of regulatory agencies here in the United States. And it's really an interesting thing because you guys are, are trying to tackle sort of the definitional problems and regulatory issues that arise with digital assets. Maybe uh, could you maybe explain in, in very basic terms as to what this law is is doing uh, for the crypto asset market, particularly in the sort of utility token space? Sure. First, I think the first element of background to, that is interesting to have in mind is the fact that these new regimes that are introduced by the back law are targeted to every types of instruments that are not considered as a financial instrument. Bearing in mind that in France, the definition of financial instruments is quite limited. So it's either a share, a bond, or a unit or share of the fund, or a financial contract, so derivatives. Whenever crypto assets um, falls under these definitions, they uh, have to abide by the existing framework for securities regulation that is set at the European level. All the rest, and we consider uh, that it's the majority of the crypto assets that are actually um, developed in that environment at this stage, they are likely to fall within the, this, uh, this new regime. So we didn't try to, to make further definition, I should say, between utility, payment, uh, so on and so forth. We just did this very broad uh, distinction between financial instruments and the rest of the world. That's how it works. And then the framework that was introduced uh, is built around four pillars. 
So the first one is the, uh, an optional visa, visa for ICOs, initial coin offerings. Um, the second pillar is an optional license for, let's say, crypto intermediaries. So it involves a lot of different types of activities, broker-dealer types, uh, uh, crypto exchanges, custodians, uh, uh, advice on crypto assets, portfolio management, and so on and so forth. So for, and for um, these types of, uh, of players, you have a new optional license. There are some mandatory anti-money laundering uh, measures that are um, provided by the, this new framework for specific types of intermediaries, so those that are acting as an interface between the crypto asset space and the fiat currencies, yep. basically broker-dealers. And then we have specific rules for investor protection. Can I can I get us just just jump in right there because um, just for clarification, um, it's fascinating. So you have a, 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 when you say there's a voluntary aspect for some of the crypto asset market participants, and just so that I understand and so our viewers understand, I guess if you if you do opt into this particular system, I guess the idea is that there's a for lack of a better word, an implicit seal of approval that's given uh, by the regulatory authorities, and then you have to kind of disclose whether or not you're 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 ultimately opting in uh, and agreeing to this regime. Is that a, a, a good summary? Yeah, this is one of the specificities of the regimes that are uh, that are introduced by this law. It's the this has been discussed at length, both at the parliament, with the government, and with the authorities. Uh, it's a it's a very new way of uh, regulating. But yes, it's some sort of a label um, that are granted to 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 the players that want to abide by the regulations. I should also mention that sanctions are provided for in the event of uh, non-compliance with the rules. So this is an important element. Uh, if the visa or the license are optional, once the player decides to apply for it, it will have to abide by all the rules that are uh, that that are associated with those um, those statuses. So yeah, the, the the government decided to go with this option for I think several reasons. And first, because this environment was up to now largely part of a legal vacuum at the international level, and so we had to to bear in mind that compulsory regimes would have been very difficult to enforce in practice. They would have been likely to drive the, the projects away from France and where they would still be able to offer some services to French investors. Um, this is due to the, 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 the mere cross-border nature of the, the firms that are evolving in that environment. So it, it required us to, to think in, a, in, a, in an innovative way, let's say, but it's also uh, a let's say uh, a transition phase. So there is a, a, a review close that is uh, that is planned as part of these new regimes. So we will see in a couple of years' time uh, how this environment will have evolved, how the the other jurisdictions will have um, regulated the, uh, the environment, and I think we will potentially adjust where 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 need where need be. And 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 what is the uh, t timeline for the for it, for this new regime to be entirely operable in, in terms of the the the, the pact law? Well, actually, the the ICU regime is uh, now live. It's uh, operational, and we have uh, started to receive uh, some applications um, for the the intermediaries uh, parts. Uh, we we still need to. Um, there is still a decree, a government decree that needs to be uh, approved. Um, following that, we will have to publish our uh, rule book, our general regulation that is uh, 
the, the French uh, rulebook, let's say, that will provide all the details that are associated to the high-level principles that are set in the, in the law. And following that, the, the regime will also become operational. So we expect uh, the, the intermediary regime to be ready by fall this year, more or less. Okay, last question. Really super easy question. What's your impression of Facebook Libra? You have five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> this project naturally raises a, a number of questions, but the the answers to that to those questions would be provided primarily by the heads of states and central bankers, uh, of course. But as far as we are concerned, uh, from Securities Market Authority, we we simply note that. Um, there are a lot of elements that remain unclear at this stage on very essential topics, such as how does this project will generate revenues, um, who will be the asset manager or financial entity responsible for maintaining the currency baskets uh, and the, the stability of the currency baskets, how the pegging would work in practice, who will benefit from the upside and downside? How will the governance mechanism uh, work in practice? Because actually the governance aspect and the degree of decentralization is often the cornerstones of blockchain projects. And uh, well, the, the Libra project deserves to be clarified in that respect. But having said this, um, we also note that the, the Libra project has taken blockchain applications to a whole new dimension um, and it, in that sense, it demonstrates that innovation should no longer be considered as a marginal subject, a, a, a matter for a few gigs in, in their garage, let's say, but really as a strategic subject for um, sovereignty and competitiveness. Well, well, thank you so much. As one of those geeks in the garage who thinks about fintech all the, all the time, uh, you're, this is really fascinating, and 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 I think uh, it will be indeed uh, very interesting to see as as more of the details of the project become clear, uh, how you and your colleagues um, uh, ultimately end up in, in engaging uh, the issue. But uh, yeah, thank we'll you. We'll need some international discussions, that's for sure. <laughs> ah, we'll do it from the garages all across the world. Well, thank, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so very, very much for, for joining us. And uh, uh, we, we look forward to hopefully having you back on the program in the future. So now we're going to transition to Chris's world, where we talk about the intersection of fintech and popular culture. So... Which was the best Indiana Jones movie? This should not be hard, everyone. Answer, The Last Crusade. And it's not just because you see the idea of sort of this young Indiana Jones and the fact that he's always been interested in old stuff, but also it's got to be the scene with the cup. You know the one I'm talking about. You know, you have to see all these different holy grails. You have to choose the right cup. And if you don't choose the right cup... Oh, yeah. Financial regulation is really similar. Which cup do you choose? Do you choose the cup of being an accommodative regulator? Or is it better to be stricter in order to avoid calamities? Does it depend on the facts and circumstances? And if so, how can you create an environment where there's any predictability? I think this question will be a major issue in the upcoming year as different countries begin staking out their cryptocurrency policies and positions. 
Now, there have been, at times, signs of some real consensus. But I think that when you start digging into the details, we may start to see a little bit more friction. After all, the right cup to drink from may be different in every country. And no one wants to see their markets turn to dust because of wrong decisions. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Join us next time on Fintech Beat, produced by CQ Roll Call.